we think that this is the future of voting, where you have both anonymity of every voter, but you also have transparency of all the votes. And so any third party, any independent entity can verify the counts, can rerun their counts, and can just provide an essential check on the arbiter of that transfer of power, which are our elections officials. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Adam Friedman, is a civic technologist who is the founder of multiple organizations. These include Severa, a company that says it builds software to bring public data to life, including election stats, an election statistics archiving and publishing platform for state, county, and municipal election authorities, and Rank the Vote, a nonprofit organization formed to empower people to build grassroots movements for ranked choice voting in their own states. I really enjoyed hearing Adam's story and what he's currently up to at Severa. If you are interested in political technology, entrepreneurship, or related topics, you should definitely listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Adam at Severa. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Adam, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Adam Friedman. I'm a 42-year-old software engineer, founder, CEO, entrepreneur, living in Somerville, Massachusetts. And I am a huge proponent of democracy, popular democracy. Popular democracy is perhaps distinguished from a republic. What do you mean when you say that? And where did this inclination to be pro-democracy come from? That, it's the eternal struggle, the compromise between rule, mob rule and the wise elders that drift from the will of the people. There's never really a perfect balance. I think I lean more toward being populist out of my love for people. I just, I just, I may sound cliche or mawkish, but I have an innate just love for people and I'm excited by people and inspired and everyone's kind of interesting to me in some way. And I respect people's opinions, even if we disagree and disagree strongly. And I, and I love that aspect of democracy, of being able to argue and fight, but come to a synthesis where both sides grow a little bit. I think that's the essence of good relationships and also the essence of a good collective experience, social experience and political experience. One of the weird things that happens is sometimes the mass of people make big mistakes and sometimes elected representatives make big mistakes. And so how do you find that compromise that you alluded to? And 
and sort of insulate people who are well-informed to do the right thing. We could get into a lot of political philosophy really here. I'm could. not sure if I'm equipped. Uh, no, I'm definitely not. You asked me a, a very unfair question. That's so hard to answer. Oh, my gosh. In my circles, I'm finding that people are too quick to curtail the will of the people for what is claimed to be the greater good. I don't want to use too many examples because I don't want to get targeted if I say something's too controversial within two minutes of starting. But I think technology and and democracy are so intertwined. And today, you've probably seen this yourself, we have the biggest opportunity ever to empower and organize people to make change through populist means because the platforms, the distribution of communication and message and the ability for people to kind of self-organize. And at scale, there's never been an an era in planetary history that that allowed for that. And, And therefore, therefore, let's say, you know, the majority that you live among is against let's say something like gay marriage, you can win that. Like that was won through a lot of populist efforts and you can win over the people and you can win over the masses and change culture. Like polling, polling on gay marriage, I think in the, in the eighties was something like 20 or 30% in favor. Like it was really in the gutter. And then through a lot of really, really good faith advocacy by people who were affected by it personally, they appealed to the hearts and minds and now it pulls very high. And, and obviously, it's law of the land, and it's a beautiful thing. Well, I thought we'd left that kind of technological optimism behind with Trump, that we could trust the people with uh, populist helping shape their opinions through means fair and foul. It's a great... No, that's an excellent debate. It's a really... I think that the left in that case, like Hillary's camp, let's say, let's take that first election, made a key... They just, they just made key errors and missteps, and they alienated too many people. So I, I think it was still win. I, we're, gonna, we're definitely churning up old stuff, but winning was within reach. But I think it was actually her inability to be more populist that actually cost it. And so I think that still supports my case. Well, I, I'm not sure if I agree or disagree. I'd have to think about that because she got more votes. You know, it's a complicated matter. And that has a lot to do with like the system of how you count, which is actually something that you came to be very passionate about changing. But I, I want to take you back a little bit to understand where you come from. Tell me just a little bit about your youth and how you become interested, how you become a programmer, how you become interested in politics. I'm one of four boys. My parents are still together. I grew up in Windsor, Connecticut and West Hartford, Connecticut. I was raised with a very strong sense of Jewish identity, but also secular humanism and basic common sense ethics. On the Jewish side, my father's father is a survivor of the Holocaust. And so I was raised at a young age with a very, very strong sense of the potential for danger with the consolidation of power and fascism, the dangers of fascism. And my grandfather, he was a business owner, uh, a leather tailor. He either owned or managed, it's not clear, a big factory in Prague, Czechoslovakia. He had a wife and two children, and he had six or seven siblings. All but two of his siblings and his wife and two young children were taken and presumably uh, murdered by the Nazis. He never saw any of them again. And he had to rebuild his life in the U.S. And it obviously um, traumatized him. He went through two 
camps himself and he went from like 180 pounds to like 70 pounds in body weight in his 30s, 35 or so. And so he raised my father and his brother um, and his wife also was very traumatized from that experience, first in New York and then in Hartford. That was the seed, I think, of my of my kind of social justice consciousness as a lot of Jewish people and, and a lot of others, onlookers, seeing that one of the worst horrors in, in human history. And so through that, I've just kind of had a sense of, of public service from a pretty young age and care for people. And so in college, I went to Boston University, I majored in history, and I got into activism and I had a student group that I founded called Love Art Action. I was really into activism as a cultural phenomenon, as an inviting, welcoming, fun, joyful activity, not as something born of anger and enmity and revenge and, and all that stuff. I, I always wanted to marry activism with art and with insight and self-growth and self-actualization. I see them all very intertwined. And so that was a really exciting experience. And I think from that, I was on the board of Common Cause Massachusetts, Massaboe. I fell into the problem of government being you know, the main body by which we do things collectively or, or laws are the enshrined set, set of our cultural values. They're the commitments that we make to each other. And so lawmaking was the natural place for me to kind of look at. And then there was a lot of interest in clean elections and publicly financed campaigns when I was an undergrad. And I got really into that stuff, did some organizing around like, like a series of events there. And since then it was when I kind of committed to that realm, which is, which is politics. And then in 2007, I was going to be a teacher. I explored that a little bit. And then I fell into learning how to do web design and graphic design and then programming. And that was when I started seeing, I started seeing how technology and politics can work together. What was the first thing you built that was in that intersection of tech and politics Ooh, okay. or worked on? I built a lot of bad websites for the first few years, cutting my teeth on it. There was an MIT undergrad who I intersected with who wanted to form a website called VoterBlock. VoterBlock. Who, who was that MIT His name under? is Kainam Doan. Very enterprising guy. Uh, this was, I was pretty early on in my uh, journey being a, a software engineer. His thesis was, hey, we have LinkedIn for your professional world. We have, I think at the time it was a like Friendster. I don't even know if Facebook was out yet. Let's say Friendster, MySpace. Let's say Facebook for your social. But where can you go for your political identity or your civic social network. A number of people have tried to crack that. A lot. And yeah. so far, no success. That's right. That's right. But there are some in, in process right now. Yeah. Yeah. So we could talk about that. It was a great idea. It was kind of like vote up or down on, on things that you think about or care about and then find the affinities with other people. And then he wanted to do more like forum organizations actually take action. There was a lot. There's a lot there. It was like a big surface area of functionality. I thought it was a very cool vision, and um, I, I helped him, you know, build some kind of early versions of that. And then I think something happened where funding ran out, and then we both moved on to other things. And then that was when I, I started with the Boston Herald, and I worked for the Boston Herald for three years as one of their two web developers. I started programming on my own, sort of self-taught in junior high, 
in college, I was a computer science major. And so I got more of a formal study of algorithms and stuff that you learn in courses. It sounds like you picked up your own expertise sort of outside of the academic realm. Is that right? And, and what do you think of that versus what you see from people who are trained in computer science departments or the like? That's right. It was another MIT student, Bruno Sagai, who was my roommate at this very affordable apartment, a four-bedroom apartment in Inman Square in Cambridge. He would wake up in the middle of the day and do electronic music and then close big contracts for making custom websites off of Craigslist. And he was much younger than me, and he was on the phone talking to folks about 10K and 20K and 30K deals. I had come from all the nonprofit activist world, and I had these, for me, these numbers were were mind pop, were eye popping. I said, how is he doing this? And he said, hey, do you want to make a little money and build some websites or learn this, this trade? I said, I'll give it a shot. I didn't think I would like it. I, I couldn't, before I started doing this, I didn't want to sit in front of a computer for more than an hour. I just kind of felt like ill. He gave me kind of his $500 website projects and I cut my teeth. He taught me some of the basics. And then I just started learning on my own through books and, and online and very formally, actually, my formal education really helped me to sit down and, and, and take any subject and really sequentially build my knowledge and learn it. I did eventually master a PHP, MySQL, Apache. I saw on your LinkedIn that you liked the LAMP platform. That was where I really did most of my work until probably a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And you've moved to React? Yep, React. What do you like about that? Well, Re React is incredible. Um, it's component-based, which makes when you build an application very easy to mix and match your parts without collision. It's highly distributed. And you know, I went on Code Academy. I learned React a couple years ago and just did it through Code Academy and kind of picked it up. And it creates a beautiful conceptual interface of functionality that obscures all of the nitty-gritty of design, which I find a really exciting and easy way to build. If you want to save time on the design, you slap, you know, you, you just, be, you just uh, include a theming library and then it can kind of help your application look great out of the box. And so it saves a ton of labor that way. And then you can just focus on the architecture of the experience. And I've found you know, a lot of applications are highly performant if you build it well. I see it really gobbling up the market share in terms of what's what is the technology out there that people are interacting with? So you, you've done web solutions for a long time. Yep. Yeah, I learned in 07, 2007. So it's been... And still working away at it. It seems like one of the major projects for you has been ranked choice voting efforts. When did you first find out about that? What's the story there? Yeah, this is a, this is a funny intersection. So when I was at the Boston Herald... I became very interested in ranked choice voting. A gentleman named Greg Dennis first introduced the concept to me. It was called instant runoff voting at the time. You might know him. This is around 2007 or eight. And I just thought it was a cool idea. But in those days, there was very little happening with it. It was in a couple of cities around the country. So I didn't really feel like it was worth investing my time in, but didn't have enough of a, of a weight behind it have a movement behind it. And I felt like I didn't want to be that early, early stage with that concept. I just really focused my efforts on, on 
a lot of my software work. But I did write some op-eds. There's one in the Herald, one in the Globe on it. And in the midst of this, I, I felt like, you know, how would this apply to Massachusetts elections? What are the instances in Massachusetts where you have spoiler candidates and vote splitting and third parties that take a few percent of the vote in a close race and things like that? So I started looking through the biannual almanac of election results and statistics from the Massachusetts Secretary's office. It's actually the instances in which you have a person winning without a majority is not very high. So you'd think like, oh, ranked choice voting isn't solving a big problem. But when it does happen, it's often in very important elections, like an open seat or presidential election or governor or district attorney, which has a major impact on, on criminal justice. I see ranked choice voting as like insurance. Like you don't feel like you need it until you really do. And then you definitely want it in place for those key three-way races or really crowded races. To Was see. there one that stood out a particular race? Well, the classic one, and I think the, the reason that, w- that kept me really interested early on was the George W. Bush, Ralph Nader, Al Gore election in 2000, the presidential election, where there was such a tiny, tiny difference between the front runners, 537 votes, and then Nader had um, what, a what, lot more, 60,000-ish or something. Yeah, yeah maybe 100,000 100, votes actually in Florida. So that, to me, to me, that seemed a major design failure of the voting system that it would allow someone who didn't have a majority to win over over the other population who happened to have two plus candidates, two candidates splitting up its majority. That just seemed like mathematically wrong. So how did you go about tackling it in Massachusetts and elsewhere? Yeah, this is where the story of, of Severa, my civic tech company, and Voter Choice Massachusetts and Rank the Vote intertwine, actually. I had was looking through this data. I found a trove of PDF scans of these almanacs, and I thought, why don't I use some code to extract this data, and then I can query it to find the races I'm looking for. I did that. I created a user interface for it. But a friend of mine convinced me to kind of approach the secretary's office to show them. They really liked it. They became kind of the first partnership for this product, Election Stats. And I, the product was, wasn't even something I was even thinking about doing as a commercial venture. It was really purely to answer that research question of how many, how many races result in, in non-majority winners in Massachusetts. And, and finally, I could. And then Voter Choice Massachusetts, which I had founded in 2016, they eventually did publish that very report called Majority Overruled. And it was a compendium of these races. So the two are very intertwined. When I partnered with Massachusetts and then for Virginia, New Hampshire, and Vermont governments after, I had an office on Beacon Street right near the State House, Massachusetts State House. And this, this was 2016. And the state of Maine had just passed ranked choice voting by the ballot in that November election. And I, I was blown away. I, I did not think that ranked choice voting had that level of popular support and viability, but it did. And because of that, I jumped at it. I said, this is a moment in history. Maine being the first state to do this. Let me see what's possible in Massachusetts. So I just called a meeting within a month after that election that result. And I thought I'd get, you know, five or 10 election reform nerds or political theorists or 
math majors who love alternative voting systems or third-party activists who want libertarians and greens to have more of a, a, ch- a fighting chance. We got 54 people. Most were physically in the office and then some on online altogether. And we did a kickoff and um, we established some pretty cool, a pretty cool framework of, of organizing. And strategically, we didn't commit to what our end game was. It was very important that we remain open and say, this thing is happening. We all want this, to advance this in some way. We're not sure if we want to do a ballot measure. We're not sure if we want to pass a bill or just do local by local. Let's keep our options open. But either of those three scenarios, we know that we need to be big. We know that we need to grow real, authentic, popular support for this reforms, ranked choice voting. And that became the guiding principle of how we operated the organization. So Voter Choice Massachusetts, I presided over every monthly meeting and I built up a fantastic team of team leads, which we would meet every week and share what each team was doing. It's very simple, but very clearly delineated leadership roles and operational objectives and really KPIs in the business world, your key progress indicators. Everything was measured. And our three KPIs were people, money, and endorsements. And there were a lot of things that we established that we weren't going to do, which is get mired in debates over alternative voting systems. We weren't going to have messaging that was divisive or shouting down the duopoly or adversarial. We're going to take off our angry activist caps and we're going to put on our marketing caps and think like marketers. How do we appeal to the masses? How do we appeal to a lot of people and say, hey, this thing gives you more power. This is just good for all Americans. And this is something to bring Americans together in a really, really divisive and critical time. And that's a big part of what I love about ranked choice voting. It's also a cultural phenomenon and it's a way to inspire people to be more united and to think in terms of both and rather than zero sum either or thinking it's like architecture like when you walk into a building that has that is beautifully designed with a lot of curvature and high ceilings and light and an, an, a certain sort of artistry that inspires you it shapes your mind it shapes your thinking and this is again is that theme of the collective work we do and the self-work we do are so always intertwined. We're all kind of actualizing as individuals and as related people and as groups. And there's something really beautiful and poetic about that. So yeah, we could talk about kind of operationally what was kind of cool about the organizing methods and then also ranked choice voting itself. What's interesting is what you see as beautiful and poetic and clearly the people that were working along with you must have felt similarly in one way or another. It strikes me as a tough thing to reach far into the electorate with something of this complexity when people are paying attention to football and uh, other things like that. What's the reality of what you felt as you were trying to get people to see the poetry? (laughs) <laughs> this is one of these myths that we would dispatch with, and you're hitting it 
a lot of activists would come in with this very presumptive thinking. They'd make these assumptions that would undermine their ability to succeed. The question I would pose folks would be, what's the number one enemy to ranked choice voting? Or what's the number one obstacle against ranked choice voting? And I'd always get, oh, the two major parties, the power structures against it's going to shut it down. That was typically the response. The number one obstacle is public education. So you've kind of nailed it. You've nailed it. The way we've been voting, we've been doing it for about 200 years. When you say the word vote or voting or election, the vast majority of Americans, that's all they know is the pick one first past the post system. That They have no concept of alternatives. It's never really been linked to politics. They might have done some five-star rating, some Yelp rating or something, or product rating, or ranked their choices in some survey, but it's never really been linked to real political elections. And so I think there's a cognitive bridge you have to help people build to get there. But what is culture change, if not the challenge of bridging someone from an old habituated way of thinking to a new habituated way of thinking, which might appear mystifying, complex, daunting, out of reach, absurdly radical at first. And then you chip away and you chip away and people sleep on it and they read a few articles and they talk at the kitchen table, they talk with their friends, and it starts to normalize. And before you know it, it's a part of your thinking, it's a part of what you're doing, and you love it. And that's being proven because it is gaining ground everywhere now. It's exploded in terms of its usage. Alaska adopted in 2020 and is using it. Utah just proliferated around the state in, in over 30 municipal entities in Utah. And, and then another probably 20 or 30 around the country. Every cycle, it gains some territory, if you will. And the surveys of people who use it, you, you consistently get 70 to 80 to 90% who would want to use it again and who find it easy and intuitive. So it's one of those things like when you haven't faced it before, it might seem daunting, but we always break it down like this. You could still vote the way you vote now with ranked choice voting. You could just rank your first choice and you can leave the second and third rankings if you want to. So you're not forced to do anything differently. I, I also love that about it. But if you want to take advantage of the additional power that a ranked ballot gives you, the power of backup choices, if your first favorite can't win, you can rank your second and third and your vote will transfer to your backup choice. That's all you need to do. So it's really counting one, two, three, and thinking beyond your favorite to say, is there a second and third favorite? So when you focus on the voter's experience, that is a really key way to educate people quickly and easily, where they're like, okay, you're giving me something, you're giving me more power, more voice. But the big mistake that activists had made in the past is they really get into the tabulation process, the rounds of counting, how to pick the winner, which we always taught from a marketing standpoint, you know, show people what they're getting first. And then if they want to get into those details, sure, go into the details. But if you start there, it's going to sound very mathy. And a lot of Americans, let's face it, are kind of allergic to math. So that's, that's hard. Where does the opposition reside to this. There's the efforts to repeal it in Alaska and elsewhere where it's come in. I know that you ran into resistance in some quarters in Massachusetts. If this is beautiful and poetic and it actually ends up often picking a person preferred by more people, which 
is a result that we would think we'd like most of the time. Where do you find the opposition? The active opposition, those who will actually spend money and, and raise their voices against it are typically, at least at the local instances or early in the earliest generation of ranked choice voting opposition, are candidates who have run and lost under ranked choice voting, who may have won under the plurality system. And it's often a case, I hate to you know denigrate, but of sour grapes or the political consultants and those candidates who have had playbooks that have worked for them for 20, 30 or more years, those playbooks have to be modified. They're not going to work anymore. Those playbooks were about focusing only on maximizing your base and then a sliver of swing voters who you can get to your side by hook or by crook. And that may mean denigrating mudslinging against your opponent to turn voters off from their opponent where you're kind of the, the last choice. I got to assume that in places which haven't had ranked choice voting, voting, there's not a lot of sour grapes people yet. So, but yet there's inertia and there's opposition. Right. Let's take those up. No, in those cases, when folks are already established, they've run for office, they're elected. That's how they got elected. That's how they stay elected. When you've banked, like, and we have politicians that, were, that are in office for a very long time. I'm, I'm actually a major proponent of term limits. I do think that when someone is in office for too long, uh, it, it can breed um, a certain sort of complacency. Or expertise. Or expertise, absolutely. But expertise <laughs> can be garnered in five to 10 years. You don't necessarily literally need 20 years to be that much more expert than someone else. And there, there's probably, this would be a great study. Like, at what point do you calcify and the downside of you being entrenched in habits overrides or offsets the, the upside of your expertise where it's a net negative at that point? That would be an interesting political study. These are folks that have really banked their identity and their lives on their position. Ranked choice voting makes them a little nervous because it does shift around the calculus of remaining in office. That's just human nature. It's just basic human nature, job security. It's totally understandable. And you develop a sense of self-worth and success based on the conditions that in the games that we're in, the game theories that we're in and that we're adapted to, and we navigate so well. And so we feel accomplished. We feel like we're smart. We feel like we're great at what we do. We deserve to be where we are. And so when you shift the rules of that game, you might have an inherent bias against that. That's very deep psychological read on it. You also have folks that just feel like, keep voting simple. The voting system has worked. You know, it's not perfect, but it works good enough. It's broadly accessible. And I sympathize with that view. I, I'm a believer in this. I, you know, here I am talking about the elegance and poetry of ranked choice voting. I love the elegance of simplicity. And so that's a legitimate concern. And I think that is a concern of working folks who don't have the time and inclination to study a different mechanism. It's hard mechanism. enough to, for them to know who to pick between the parties, much less no extraneous candidates. 100%. Yeah, 100%. So it, ta so it takes... It, it takes some some vision and some thinking, like, let's do something different and try. And this is why the U.S. is so wonderful in that every state is a laboratory for democracy. There's a lot of local entities that, that have enough autonomy when the state doesn't ban ranked choice voting, <clears throat> Florida, <clears throat> Tennessee, 
I want to take a minute to call that out because you have quote unquote small government Republicans in these states. It's a weird thing to ban a kind of voting reform, is it not? Exactly. They, they claim that they support freedom. They claim that they support liberty. They claim that they're patriots, yet they're using big government to shut down what the people in Sarasota, Florida want, the people in Memphis, Tennessee want. And not only that, that I don't believe there's a bias towards a party in that system. There right? absolutely like, is not. That's what I wanted to avoid, which is to validate the cynical reality. But here we are. This is the world we live in. Nathaniel, I, I applaud your realism, pulling me down out of the clouds onto the earth, because the, the biggest opposition right now is, unfortunately, kind of Trump-aligned, scorched-earth right-wing politics that associate ranked choice voting with one of every possible liberal conspiracy to subvert and game the system. And it's absolutely mythical. It's a myth. It's totally false. It might have a bias because it of how it creates a majority towards a more broadly acceptable candidate. But, you know, that doesn't strike me as a terrible bias. It's, exactly. <laughs> if that happened, right. If that majority happens to be not your party, then too bad. Go do more campaigning to win people over to your side. People ask all the time, like, does ranked choice voting help one party or another? If you're in a red area, ranked choice voting would get more Republicans elected. If you're in a blue area, it'll get more Democrats elected. That's great. That is populist democracy working as it should. So I want to get to your current company and what you're up to. So can you tell me quickly sort of the rest of the story, what happens with Voter Choice Massachusetts and Rank the Vote, building it, and then you stepping out of the leadership of that? So like, can you just give me a quick, quick summary of that so people understand what you did there. Definitely. Yeah. So founded Voter Choice. We had no money, no bank account, just a few activists in a room. We built it up to, I think in 2020-ish, 2019, we were 60-plus thousand strong on our list, pretty much emails and phones that we built organically, and then raised a lot of money, hired a whole staff. We had hired some, con some consultants and staff to kind of run the final ballot measure. This was never something I wanted to do. I'm not a political operative. I wasn't really raised in that world. I'm more of a, you know, as you see, a little more philosophical issue kind of guy. And so we had the kind of pros run the measure. COVID hit, and that really threw a lot of the, the campaign strategy out the window. It made it very difficult because there was so much urgency and fear and trepidation and rupture from the pandemic. That really curtailed the ability for the campaign to reach that critical mass that it needed to reach in terms of the education. So the vote came up short in Massachusetts. But meanwhile, I had been talking with a few advisors and they were saying, this needs to be national. You need to make a proposal to, to bring these organizing methods around the country. We hustled and hustled. I had put the Severa, the civic tech startup work, which I had been doing for a few years. I had slowed that down and started doing voter choice full time for about two years. So it was like a year, year and a half as a volunteer, as everybody was a volunteer. And then as we got funding, I said, let me go hard on this and put in a lot of time and really manage a staff and all that. But um, in 2019, there was such an amazing opportunity. Hey, while we have this momentum, let's 
use our methods and get it out there and help activists. Because the big problem I had seen for years and years with activists doing the same thing over and over, staying really small, they were never able to grow their numbers in these other states. They were always just stuck with a few people organizing on social media, getting nothing done, passing nothing. And I said, let me do a brain dump of all of our experience from the uh, Massachusetts experience and and bring it around and, and share that. And so that became the Ranked Choice Voting Movement playbook. So I'm the author of the playbook. That became the foundational document for Rank the Vote. So Rank the Vote's the national organization where we were sharing those methods. Because Massachusetts, we became the largest statewide movement for ranked choice voting in the country just by focusing on those people money endorsements metrics over and above. I didn't finish the explanation of the strategy. So the key was to not rush into passing a bill or doing a ballot measure, waiting on all that stuff, on all that intricate legal expertise, all that intricate political strategy, and helping regular people simply grow those three buckets, people, money, and endorsements. That's something that anyone can do. Anybody can pick up a clipboard and train to give a nice, simple explanation of RCV and get someone else to sign up, come to a meeting, do a house party, make some calls, and train to be a speaker. So we even trained over 30 volunteer speakers who would memorize a 20-minute presentation with like 60 slides. And they would go around the state We would book them at talks and they would go around and deliver their talks, depending if they lived close to the speaking gig. We gave hundreds of talks. And this is something anybody can do. They were all volunteers. It's so beautiful. And so we helped to put all that in a document where we shared it around. I felt like Severa was this startup opportunity with these government tech tools where, you know, I was working with states, working with counties to empower them to release their data, make it more transparent, provide tools for people to engage more with government. So that was a really big opportunity for me. And so Nathan was a fantastic person because he basically co-founded Rank the Vote. He was there from the beginning and he was a leader in the Voter Choice Massachusetts movement. And so he was a fantastic person to take over as ED of Rank the Vote. So he's been running with it since, growing it way beyond what I did. He's a really seasoned, very mature operator and manager. So it's been really great to watch the progress. And so I've been focused ever since about 2021 or so, I've been full-time with Severa to build technology for government. And that's been also really exciting and fun to do. Tell me about that that company and kind of the mission and some of the products and how's it going? Yeah, absolutely. So, so public data is a human right in our view. So it's a mission-based, it's a for-profit, but it's we have a very strong mission. We're very pro-transparency. And this is where we do kind of align with uh, a little bit of the Trump movement, which was the, the election integrity work. Now, he challenged the election results in all 50 states in court, in all 50 states throughout his case. There, wasn't, there was no election fraud. There was no voter fraud, as far as I can tell. However, the principle of having ballots, having votes be transparent, I believe prioritizing transparency is very, very, very important for ensuring that everyone in our democracy feels like they have access to the whole process and that they're a part of the whole process. When you're talking about transparency, you don't mean you get to know how I voted. What exactly do you mean, or or not how, but whether? I've always been puzzled as to why ballots 
are all sealed off and they're not truly public record. Of all things, of all kinds of public record, the proof that a person can walk into office and govern and rule over the rest of us is one of the most important proofs in a democracy to ensure that the public can trust that their leadership with this peaceful transfer of power via elections is done honestly and with integrity. Whether you believe any of the latest kind of craziness from the presidential election and the, the accusations that were not founded based on good evidence and seem to be not credible, whether you believe that or not, the principle is still a very, very powerful and foundational principle. And we're seeing around the country that governments, state, county, and local governments are being painted into a corner where they really need to produce this material. And we think that it's the right thing to do ultimately. Are you saying you should be able to look through the stack of ballots in your precinct online? That's right. So there are issues of voter privacy that are very important to protect. So this is not like free for all. Anybody can see every ballot without any limitation. But we can put in safeguards to ensure that precincts with very low numbers of voters cannot be peered into where someone could triangulate the identity of the voter. Putting that in place, you can allow for everyone to see all of the cast ballots and the cast vote records. And we think that this is the future of voting, where you have both anonymity of every voter, but you also have transparency of all the votes. And so any third party, any independent entity can verify the counts, can rerun their counts, and can just provide an essential check on the arbiter of that transfer of power, which are our elections officials. And this is still an emerging view where, you know, obviously a lot of elections clerks are nervous about it. It's usually around the, their, the 2020 election brought this onslaught of harassment against election administrators. That is a very tragic result of this process because the election administrators, they're the unsung heroes or the rock stars upholding the operations of our democracy. They're the reason we don't have like a violent transfer of power like some other countries where you have a lot of turmoil between leadership. So we should all be very, very focused on keeping that part of our system protected, funded, very well resourced. But on the other hand, it's sometimes a little bit of the controversy is what elevates these positions to remind us how sacred and powerful and important they are. And so as a company, as Severa, when we, we give so many software demos to election clerks, we love what we do because we're also equipping them with tools to make their work a lot better, to create a shield to handle public records requests and some of these harassing types of requests where they can point people to our digital tools for them to handle those requests rather than to bother their office, to call an email constantly and to bog them down when they're trying to run the next election without error. And they're very, very serious about what they do. And we feel like we're in a really good place to support them just morally, but very much practically and technologically and operationally. So how's the company doing? Like, where have you sold this? What makes it challenging to sell and what are the prospects? Yeah. So to date, our election stats platform is in nine states. It's the premier 
historical longitudinal research resource for anything elections, ballot questions, and voting statistics of official records and official reports in these states. Do you have competition? The closest thing we have is, is election night reporting. There's a number of companies that do election night reporting. The big companies are really the election management system vendors that sell the voting machines and the man- all the management and the tools to really manage the actual elections. We work just on the reporting side. We, we work just on the relationship between the public and the government. Our tool is quite unique in that it's historical and retrospective, not just hey, what are the latest results? We want to jump on online and, and see that on election night. Um, so we're kind of in our own lane, if you will, doing that. And a lot of vendors aren't so interested, a lot of folks, they're just not that interested in, in extracting data from PDFs from the 1950s or the 1820s. We even go back to the 1790s in a few states. Uh, have you ever been asked to provide the boundaries for these antique elections. Like I have a friend who was my office mate in grad school who was professor at UCLA who has like historical congressional district boundaries. And there's an atlas of those you may be aware. It seems like if you're going to say what happened, you would want to know where this election took place as well. Is that something you do or contemplate? Oh yeah. We are delivering uh, interactive mapping actually by the end of this year for one of our states who, when it's launched, I'll let you know. So these are geographical data that we are probably going to go back to maybe the year 2000. When you go back before the early 2000s, as you probably know, there's almost nothing available that is, that is really quantitative, like based on longitude, latitude. Remember, it's hard to find for political boundaries. So maybe you know a lot better than I do. You've been in the space a lot longer. I mean, I could probably connect you to people who do. It's really in the redistricting world where where a lot of that resides. My understanding, though, is there was a shift from just tracking it based on landmarks and addresses versus actual GPS coordinates. But you can translate from one method of exploring geography to another. That's true. And, and you can only do as well as you have records, of course. Right, right. And, and I would think that there's more interest in the current than in the historical, but... You know, but it is a good project and it seems like states might want to fund that or I don't know. I mean, the general idea of a company that provides better user interface for government for functions, it seems like a big idea, a good idea, and one with a lot of opportunity across every realm of the government. I've talked on and off with other tech entrepreneurs in the government space over the years who have a vision of like making your DMV work well or what or whatever the agency is, whether it's immigration, whatever. Is, is that something where like, okay, you've got a product here. Do you imagine a suite of many products that make government work better? Oh, yeah. Campaign finance is another great opportunity. For like the FEC or the FPPC side for the government to provide back the information that yes. gets submitted in a fine. usable yeah. way in a more yeah. usable and accessible. And there have been people who've built those over the years. There um, have been. Yes. I don't know how good they are. I, I suspect they yeah, vary I mean, a lot by state. Maplite is one of the best, you know, they've been out there for a while. They're in California. I think they're still a nonprofit. They had their own tool and they also contract with governments to help build their tools. So we're in the same space there. 
a lot of these these systems, you can search through people's PDF or paper filings, which you know you could do a search. You search for a name, and then you get a bunch of reports. Then you have to go into the reports to look at the numbers. This is all changing, right? As it should have 10, 20 years ago. But there's still a lot of stragglers where you know it, you should be elevating the money, and we should be searching the transactions and the roll-up statistics. And again, Open Secrets is another great nonprofit that's done a, a tremendous job on this front. There's still a lot of room to keep keep uh, improving and to empower government to do this better on behalf of taxpayers. You're still a pretty small enterprise. What are the highlights so far for you and, and what's your goal going forward in terms of building a company? We are product driven. So we just want to provide good products that our customers think are awesome and, and make their you know lives better. Why I brought up ballot transparency earlier is because there is this pressure to provide um, ballots and cast vote records, and we are putting out a product that does that. And when we do that, we're finding in jurisdictions that are their mind is blown because they're getting requests for this stuff. And some states, they're, they don't have to, to provide it to people who request it. Some states, they do. And for those that do, it's very painful. They have people going into their office, opening up boxes and going through ballots, and it has to be highly regimented and supervised. And be able to put it up where people can filter by any factor, by, by contest, by precinct, by was it the vote by mail only, the in-person early voting ballots only. It saves them so much time and effort. And so those kinds of products we're really excited about. The big knock-on benefit is that Sometimes with this sort of product, they find that there are processes in the back end where the way that they're doing the vote counting and the tracking is not so tight. By putting these ballots online, it forces the government entity to make sure that the whole thing is traceable and auditable from end to end. Because in many jurisdictions, the little secret is that it's not. There's issues like, for instance, now we're getting into the weeds here, so you can stop me if it's too... No, no, I, I like weeds. Okay, cool. The voting machines that scan the ballots might scan your vote a certain way, but it may be wrong once the ballot is reviewed by a, a, what's called judges, or it's the adjudication process. It's typically very occasionally wrong, right? Correct. It's it is right. very occasionally. It is very right. occasionally. Again, it's like insurance. It doesn't matter until it does. If it's a close race, you're going to want to do this right. And so a lot of jurisdictions where they do adjudications, they have to override what the machine found. And in, in some jurisdictions, they're not documenting that very well. And so if we were to put all of the ballots online, then there's going to be a mismatch between their official report and what the machines have found. And that can raise a lot of eyebrows. Without being nearly as close to this as you, obviously, it worries me a bit that more information begs a lot of questions from conspiracy theorists who have the ability to turn any information into part of the conspiracy that they imagine. Like if you have the ability to look at all the ballots, then you say, where did these ones come from? Or why are not these ones not there? And it doesn't actually end the speculation or come close to shutting down the arguments against things being tight. 
So that, okay, so you're hitting a very fundamental principle. So if you're principle-driven, you have to accept the foolishness and stupidity of your neighbors. If you believe in democracy, you can't have it both ways. You can't have both transparency and a rich ecosystem of open understanding and also shut down people who have it wrong people who are annoying, people who are shrill, people who are persistent and vocal. You have to trust that those tactics will eventually wear out your more, more moderate you know, swing voters or anyone else that are, that are kind of trying to make a decision or be influenced by it. It's not going to last. We can't let the, the vocal flashpoints make us feel insecure and threatened like more information is going to make something worse in a linear way that will always be worse. I don't believe that that's the case. I think that that will die down. If you're inside of a government agency, let's forget about voting for a second. There've been a lot of pushes for open data across the federal government and in state governments. Some agencies will go along, but you often see a resistance to letting our internal work product out there or letting our statistics out there, because all it's going to do is create trouble for you. You're going to have people coming after you. They're going to nitpick you. I'm sure you're aware if you're in the space, right? How do you find that balance when your customers are sometimes the types of people that want to provide a polished product to the outside world, not show their warts? Right. Not, right. That, that, that question also is so, I love that you asked that. It's so fundamental. And this brings us back to that theme. You have to bring out the warts in order to correct them. You have to bring out the mistakes in order to correct them. And there is this built up antagonistic relationship between government and the public, government and journalists. Journalists are running around trying to get the gotcha story. I believe that in time with maturity and grace, we can evolve into a culture where government and leadership exposes their errors openly, constantly, and says, we're constantly doing better. I think our society is doing that on a social level all the time, where you see friends of ours who are online talking about their addictions, talking about their weaknesses, talking about when they failed in relationship. This is another beautiful thing where people are trying to be more real, more authentic. They're trying to self-actualize. And so they're very honest. It's like a radical honesty about those kinds of failures. And I think that that individual self-actualization and that institutional self-actualization, again, can work together to bring a more collaborative and constructive culture where we know there's mistakes and we're going to work them out. We all know that we're, we're in a company or, or an institution where leadership is very self-effacing and says, hey, we screwed up and we're going to try to take steps to remedy this and do better next time. That engenders a lot of respect and trust. So the, the initial moment might be rocky, but yeah, there's a balance, of course. There's like a balance. I mean, and, and did something criminal. That's things, well, things happen in our politics where people misrepresent things and they seize onto any, anything and they make a big deal out of it. You just happened to buy a 
$20,000 podium and then suddenly it's out there <laughs> <laughs> because someone did a freedom of information request and you start to hate the, the FOIA laws, right? It's true. These are all the risks right now. Who knows? I'm trying to predict the future. I'm, there's a lot of hope. You have this idealism that's that's a theme for you, that you have an idealism about changing the system in how we vote to make it work better and let's call it more poetic. And you have this idealism about making the government work better and be more transparent. And that's why you do what you're doing, it seems to me. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> well, is there a question I should have asked you that I failed to? No, I think we covered some good ground. I think so too. I enjoyed it. I love talking to people who are political entrepreneurs, who are activists. You kind of fit multiple roles in this, and I'm glad to get your story. It fits in with some of the ranked choice voting people I've talked to around the ecosystem. Thank you for taking time. Anything else you want to say? No, I think keeping things as positive and constructive and collaborative and having the grace to allow all of us to be imperfect and messy is good politics. It's good relationship. And it's just good individual self-work as well. So I think those principles, there is a through line from the individual to the collective where those principles should remain the same. There's many, many environments where that works out well. There's a few where it does not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently. I agree. <laughs> anyway, great to talk to you. That was Adam. He is at Severa.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.